0: We'll open up to Exodus chapter 17. We are a long way from Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, we opened up with the the first arrival of the Israelites. There was only about 70 of them into Egypt and, and over 400 years then passed in that first few chapters where we saw the people of God multiply according to his commands. We saw them enslaved by Egypt. We saw them massacred in infanticide by the Egyptian armies. We saw Moses miraculously spared and raised up. He met God in Mount Horeb. How far we are from Exodus chapter 3 where Moses first met the living and true God. Then he went back into Egypt and he was used by God for the plagues against Pharaoh, the destructive miracles against Egypt, the release of God's people from slavery across the Red Sea in miraculous power and into the wilderness. We are a far way from Exodus chapter 1. But it seems even now, after all of the acts of mercies, The divine works of miracles. It seems that now, in the wilderness, after this salvation, after the bitter water turned sweet, after the miracle bread coming down day by day, every morning, miraculous bread on the ground, every day, God in front of them in a cloud, every night, God in front of them in a fire, this constant miraculous blessing to the people of God. And it seems that they are less Godly than they were in their slavery. In Exodus 1, we see that they are crying out to God, calling on Him according to His covenant promises to Abraham. In this passage today, we will see their continued downgrade and degradation into further and more bitter complaining. Exodus chapter 17, (coughs) verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the living God. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Pause. We've been here before. We know what's going to happen. This is fine. No cause for emergency or alarm. Everybody remain seated. Keep your seatbelts on. No worries at all. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Oh, bad, bad news. And said, Give us water to drink. That's how it sounds in the Hebrew. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people Will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. Amen. And may he who has ears to hear hear the word. ...of the living God as he is in our midst to speak it to us today. They repeated their their frequent sin. The sin that we have said over and over again will be the downfall of this generation. God will not break his promises to Israel. He is a covenant-keeping, steadfast, love God. And yet he will kill this whole generation and leave them as a path of corpses through the wilderness because now for about, I've, I've lost count, about the fourth time now they have grumbled against God assuming he wants to kill them and break his promises and it will come up to the tenth time that they finally grumble and test God and strain his patience that he says that is enough. This people go astray from me. This people don't know my love. These people have seen, but they do not understand my gracious covenant. They will not enter the blessings. They will not go into the promised land. They'll die in the wilderness. And then they have 40 more years until their children rise up and enter into God's Sabbath land. They are grumbling Again, today, they've gone on, it's probably been a few months uh, uh, since, the, since the Red Sea at this point, and, and they've uh, been eating of the miracle bread We've, uh, and, and drinking from that sweet water that came out of the, the bitter, bitter lake called, uh, uh, called Mara, and yet at this point, as thirst strikes, they again show their true colors. We've been saying over and over again, each week, that grumbling, grumbling from the people of God is a sin that has multiple sins underneath it. As the people of God grumble, which is just, by the way, the easiest thing to do, the easiest thing to do is grumble at things that go... If you want, at any given moment in the Christian life, About your church, in a members meeting, or over coffee with other people, or in your own heart, or over a beer with a mate. The easiest thing to do at any point is to complain and grumble about problems. Because you know what we have about 150 of in this room today? 150 problem people. You're sinners. I'm a sinner. The best of us are sinners. I'm pointing at me. I meant Keith. The best of us are even still sinners, that have in any given week as many interactions as we have with people, we have as many opportunities to upset, annoy, offend, and even sin against the Lord. The easiest thing to do, the most immature thing to do, the most stupid, short-sighted thing to do is complain and get offended and be easily made upset. This is what they do. (coughs) Grumbling does the easiest thing, which is find problems to complain about, which we could all do very easily. The mature refuse to obsess about them. Grumbling, we have said, forgets God's past mercies, right? We saw this as we were just reading it. They come to a point where there's no water... And it's okay, it wasn't long ago that millions of people drank from miracle water and then had a little two-week holiday by the oasis, remember, at Ifim. They had an oasis with palm trees. It was like Florida. It was beautiful. They had a few weeks there. Should they not have remembered when thirst struck that God's about to do something miraculous. Let's not complain. Let's not try and kill Moses again. Man, that guy must have had some bruises. Let's just keep a calm and steady head and just assume God's going to do something again, but they don't. They forget God's faithful past mercies. They are thankless and ungrateful. Instead of stopping and saying, it looks like we might die here, Let's all just list how good God's been and then die in a joyful soul. That that at least would have been more faithful than what they do, but they don't do that. Grumbling complains with no faith in God's future provision, and so it tests him it puts him on trial as if they deserve something more and they deserve to be answered in their grumbling. This is, the, this is the test that they are putting to God. Will he do for us whatever we want? But we learned last week, as God gave them manna and the week before as God gave them sweet water, God was actually in a season of testing them. God was, in this period, up until they reach the promised land, and more specifically, up until they get the laws on Mount Sinai, God is testing them. Will they be the kind of people that will obey my laws when they receive them? Or are they the type of people who complain at every juncture, go astray at every juncture, find a reason to follow their own wisdom and leave behind God's wisdom and laws at every junction. Now we've seen three weeks in a row now, they are not passing the test. They are not. This is why at the end of the passage, Moses calls this place the place of testing. Because he knows this is where our grade was handed down. We failed. From here on out, it is certain we are failing God's God's test. So it's not looking good. In fact, in this passage, the way that other biblical texts in the future recall back on this day of sin, this day of testing and grumbling, some of them even suggest that Moses himself was in guilt along with the other Israelites. Now we've seen, we can only guess as to how exactly he's failing in this passage. Because it doesn't say that he grumbles to the Lord. It doesn't say that he forgot God's faithfulness. But there's something he doesn't do, which he's done at other points. In earlier points, when the people grumble, he says, do not test the Lord. He is faithful. He will fight. Just stand back and watch. And he was reassuring them. Now, at this point, maybe it's just the the constant down pulling of leadership in spiritual ministry that has Moses, Moses in a bit of an Elijah point. Moses is just depressed and feeling faithless. Maybe, or maybe he himself is pretty ticked off and annoyed. We don't know. But for whatever reason, he doesn't stand up, broad shoulders, open chest, rebuke them, point them to God's faithfulness and go to God in prayer. But he cried out to the Lord, we're told, in verse 4. And God does Answer, But Moses is obviously struck with fear. These people are going to kill me. That's, that's one heck of a members meeting. I'm sure we've all been in one of those before if you've been in church uh, for any period of time. <clears throat> now we do see, of course, in verse 5 through 6, God's miraculous, amazing blessing. His provision. Look at verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Moses, go back out in front of them. Show them you're not afraid. Moses takes some of the elders, representatives of the people, witnesses who can tell everybody, because there's no way that the multiple millions of the crowd will be able to see with precision exactly what Moses is going to do. Get yourself some witnesses to stand before God and the people and tell them of God's mighty works, and take with yourself that symbol, that sacrament, that, that, that picture of God's miraculous divine presence, the staff of God. The staff that turns the Nile into blood is what he's referring to. The staff with which you struck the Nile. Remember my my first miracle among them was a water-based miracle? That's what he's reminding them. I'm okay with dealing with water problems. God was reminding them. It It is the sign and the symbol of his presence among them. And so Moses, holding up the staff, he walks in front of them, 70 elders behind him, and they walk up to The rock. Look at verse (coughs) 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. I've been making pains to remind you that every time we see a visible manifestation of God's glory... And every time we see a personification of God in some kind of visible or fleshly way, whether that be the fire of the burning bush, the cloud and fire that is leading them, the angel of the Lord that appears to Joshua, the the, the angel that appears to Abraham, Whatever it may be, in the Old Testament, we ought to see that where God visibly appears to his people, he is doing so through the mediation of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. No man has seen the Father, but it is God the Son's job to make visible appearance and manifestation to the people of God, the reality and the truth of God the Father. It is then the Spirit that invisibly applies the truth that is manifest to the people's heart. But here is another juncture where God is saying, I'm before you in the cloud. God, the Son is present with you through the cloud and the fire, but I am going also to walk with you, Moses. The people won't see me. You won't see me. I, I don't know whether Moses saw a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. I'd, I'd love to have been there. I can't say I would have been on the good side this day. I'm glad I was born after the cross, But here's Jesus, in some way, God the Son, walking with Moses, and he goes and stands up upon the rock and commands that Moses strike the rock. God was with his leader. God himself was there in their midst, presiding over the people, and was about to give them water to drink. He says, strike the rock, water will come out, and the people will drink. There's... Exodus commentaries are just filled with these liberal theologians trying to explain what really happened because obviously it wasn't a miracle. What they say is that this was obviously just a well, a rock stone well with water in the bottom and it needed a bit of a plunge and then water could come out. That's pretty dumb. Firstly, because the people wouldn't be complaining next to a well why they don't have water Secondly, because that is entirely made up and fabricated and this is everywhere spoken of in the Bible as a miracle of water out of rock. Now, now they do the same thing when they say that the the Israelites walked over ankle-deep water in the Red Sea or that the the Egyptians drowned in that same ankle-deep water or whatever it may be. People try and weasel out of this strange explanations, but just try and picture it an enormous rock, which might have been just a stone sort of sitting on the surface, but the Hebrew word can also mean a a rock cliff face or even a, a, a small mountain that is largely rock with no greenery, whatever it be. Moses walks up to it. God the Son presides over it. And Moses takes a swing and hits it for six. And water gushes out of the face of the rock in an utter divine miracle. Here is the grace of God. Here is the sign of God's mercy that he has heard their struggle. But here is also a promise. Not only are they lapping at the water and there is now this out of the desert There is now this brand new river gushing from a rock and and they can come up and they can drink it as a great mercy and grace from God. But secondly, it's supposed to be another tattoo on their eyeballs. It's supposed to be another reminder that God will help them in the future so that the next time they have a water issue or the next time they have a plumbing disaster, or the next time that they have any issue at all, they can call on God and His divine servant, His divinely appointed servant Moses, will bring about a solution. He's reminding them, I'm going to be here for your sustenance and your provision into the future. Surely, surely we can all agree at this point, they're done with their grumbling, right? This will be it. This will be the day. It won't happen again. They're just so delighted. God has shown them mercy. They'll never doubt him again. It didn't happen that way. Look at what verse 7 tells us. And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah. That is, that he gave it, it's not a hyphenated name, it's just interchangeable names. It, you, it can be called whatever you, uh, either one of these seems most appropriate. It was given two names. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. You see, this name Massa means to quarrel. The name Meribah means to test. And yeah, he swapped those around, actually. Massa I believe, is testing. Yeah, that's right. Masa means to test. That is to put somebody to the test and try them. And Meribah means to quarrel, to fight, to, 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 to argue. And so Moses says, this is now the place of testing and quarreling because you tested God and because you quarreled there this day by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Here on this day, they put God to the test. They, they dared to speak to heaven as God was in front of them in cloud and fire. Do you remember what it starts out in chapter 17 by saying? The Lord commanded, the Lord led them in stages. Everywhere they went, God was present with them. And they had the audacity to ask, to, to demand, God, prove yourself. We're here struggling and we're here thirsty. Now, we think that we have the right to accuse you of being a murderous, vindictive, capricious God. You want us dead. That's how the evidence looks, God. You have to prove to us that you're actually worth trusting. This was the sin of testing God. A great insult. Deuteronomy 6 actually picks up on this very occasion and commands the next generation. So their children are about to raise up. They're going to be commanded on that day in Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. This is exactly the situation and the scenery that will be picked up on in Deuteronomy 6. Don't do what you did back at Massah when you tested me. But I'm sure that quote also strikes a nerve of familiarity for many of us who know our New Testament. This is the exact verse that in his 40-day wandering of the desert, in his fasting and in his hunger of being tried and tempted by the devil, the Lord Jesus himself pulls on this very verse. When he was told to throw himself off and to, you know, here's the scriptures that prove that God will rescue you. Why don't you, why don't you test God and really prove your divine status as, as the coming and reigning king, Lord Jesus? Satan said, the great scholar the great prosperity gospel preacher, that great prophet and apostle who comes down and plants a church in your neighborhood and promises, here's God's promises, you just throw it out and expect God will meet your needs. Don't you deserve it? You're a child of God. He'll never let you hunger. He'll never let you hurt. He'll never let you starve. He'll never let you go through pain. Is the devil saying that to Jesus. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, which refers to this day at Massa and says, thus the scriptures say, you shall not put your God to the test. This is a lesson for us as well. We think, (coughs) often, people think, that, that in a time of, of struggle or trial or, or in a time of a lack of assurance or in a time of need or just because you're trying to increase your spirituality, we think that if God does something for us, if he answers our challenge, our double dog dare to Yahweh, we, we really challenge him to do something miraculous and then we will be more faith-filled. And it is in fact the equation entirely in reverse. People demand a sign from God. Maybe it's the hypercharismatics. Maybe it's the maybe it's the us in our low points of faith, in our struggle. Maybe whoever it may be, each of us are tempted in the same direction to say to God, "I'll really trust you if I see an undeniable sign of your power right now." save my loved one who's, who's dying, uh, heal them, or please replenish this bank account, or, or please meet my need in this area, do something great, God, then I will not lose my faith again. Jesus picks up on this dynamic of the, of the human heart to say to God, do a miracle, then we'll believe, he picks up on this in, uh, in Luke's gospel in the parable of Lazarus who dies and the parable of the rich man who died. And he says as if, to, as if to Abraham from the proverbial hell pit, he says, I don't want my brothers to die and come here. Please send back somebody from the dead to preach to them. Then they will repent. Then they will believe. Then they won't come here. And Jesus' condemning words ring out in that parable. They have the prophets. They have the words of Moses. If they do not believe them, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. How ironic he would say that as he's about to raise somebody from the dead named Lazarus. As he's about to rise himself from the dead in power very soon. This is the reality. If we demand a sign to have faith, it's not faith that we then have, it's sight. And we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. All that that is doing is setting ourselves up so that in the time when God is not doing a miracle, we will have less faith because we can't see anything. We are setting ourselves up for failure rather, rather as painful as our situations become, as, as, as distraught as our souls may feel, as hopeless as we may be tempted to be. Do not pray that God prove himself Through miracle, then you'll believe. But run to the word. Run to God's promises. Run to those rich, golden gifts of scripture that promise these things to us in Christ. Hold fast to them and say, God, don't give me a sign. Give me faith. In the absence of a sign. For you have given the sign of all signs, which is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And if you did not hold him back from me, you will surely give me, along with him, all things that I need. Romans chapter 8. That's what we need to do in our moments of trial. Don't test God, allow him to test you. Come to him faithfully, without any sign, without any demand and lean on his invisible promises as the future is uncertain to us. God says that he named it Massa because they tested him, but he also named it Meribah because they quarreled against him. Psalm 95. I've referred to this a few times through these grumbling passages. Psalm 95 becomes a a, a bit of a hymn, a bit of a a memory hymn, a, a memory verse about the danger of being a grumbling people. Psalm 95 speaks about what a, what a blessing it is to be a part of God's pasture. What a blessing it is to be an Israelite, to, under God's kingship. What a, what a true, wonderful blessing. And then halfway through the psalm, it takes this turn. And it says, Do not let these blessings set you up for a rebellious failure. Psalm 95 verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. They had the audacity to say to God, let's test him and see if he's he's really powerful. And he's telling them, I've given you an innumerable amount of tremendous works that you can look back on if you're looking for proof. But they further test him. As verse 7 concludes, with this insulting, condescending, faithless insult. Is the Lord among us or not? Munching on miracle bread. Still, Still were cups just dried out from the miracle water. People living who should have died back in Egypt during the plagues. Munching on the miracle bread, questioning God. Underneath the cloud that he provides them shelter from the harsh sun every day. And under that little shade, they dare to ask, is is he even here? I think mums have the best sense of this frustration out of anybody. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. And I know that if I was a mother... I don't want to say what would happen. It's, I'm just glad I'm not the mother. I've, I've seen this from afar and I've had to help her uh, deal out what happens next. But, but as the mother labors in a kitchen, right? You've, I'm sure mums have been here and, 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 and it's about dinner time, so you know how the body clock works. Your children are going to be hungry, So what do you do? You you start making a meal, and as you're making it, mid-make, you know, you've got your ingredients here, the bowl's over here, the oven's heating up, you're starting to get a bit hot in this this hard-working kitchen, your kids come up to you mid-preparation and say, Mum, are we going to have dinner, or what? My goodness, the self-control every mother needs at that moment, and I throw the kid in the oven, serve them up for dinner. It's a memory to the other kids, that's it. The, the frustration that must be as God is actively sustaining them with his miraculous power, and they say, Where is he anyway? What, what's he done for us? But this will be a parable. This will be a parable of the people of Israel, every generation being warned don't be like that symbol of, of adulterous hearts, that symbol of blindness, that first generation. Don't be like them. I think there's three little practical questions to ask yourself in order to avoid grumbling, in order to, to keep away in the spirit of Psalm 95. Keep yourself away from being like this generation. A question, a few questions for, for us. Number one: are you thankful? Are you thankful? I should say? Are you full of thanking regularly, not when you feel like it, but do you have decided, intentional, regular points in your day with your family, with your housemates, with with yourself? Do you have decided moments of of maybe family remembrance? Do you have a discipline whereby you put into your, your calendar, your schedule, your soul, points where you stop and try and list all the blessings of God. I I I, I day to try tonight, before you go to bed, start praying at bedtime for all of the things just today that you have to thank God, and you will not be done by the time we meet the church next week. Are you, thank, are you intentionally thankful? Are you exemplifying to your children fathers and mothers? Are you exemplifying thankfulness for undeserved mercies? If you are. Thankfulness is the opposite to grumbling and will be an antibiotic to its poison. Secondly, (coughs) are you thankful? Secondly, are you engaged in the Great Commission? Are you engaged in the Great Commission? The, the, The water bodies that grow algae are idle, unmoving, stagnant water. So it is with souls. So it is with Christians. So it is with churches. The churches and people or pockets of people or cliques or families that are not engaged, taking intentional steps to preach the gospel to the community to spread the evangelization through us into the people around us, to to invest our time, effort, and money into a local church's mission, it is the families, the people, the church friendship circles that fail to do so, that remain stagnant, and now have all the time in the world to look around at how everybody else is doing mission and find a hundred things to complain with, to complain about. Spurgeon used to say, I agree, my evangelization is not perfect, but I prefer the way I do it to the way you don't do it. So it is, in the people have got the greatest suppressor of grumbling is to just be engaged. Then you know what you'll find? As you try to be busy for the Lord God, you'll realize... <laughs> People could look on me and complain a whole bunch now too. I see how hard this business is, like maybe a mother who says, that's it, gloves off, knife down, infant into the kitchen, you go. Teenage boy, you go prepare your dinner and let's see how you do. So it is with the people who go, oh, are you busy? Are you sacrificing time? Are you thinking about how you might be engaged in spreading the gospel? And if you do, you will automatically have less time to grumble You will have more things to pray for. You will have more things to thank God for. Your soul will be shaped rightly because Christians are meant to be soldiers on mission, not surveyors assessing everybody's faults. Be builders, be workers, be soldiers for the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find grumbling eradicated. And thirdly, are you repentant? Because even the, the most active, even the most, the most hardworking, even the most thankful of us are sinners who will frequently grumble in our heart or question God or demand a sign. So daily or here in the, in the communion service or, or every week in the church service do you come and confess your sin to God and make decision in your heart to repent from it. However, this sin often grabs your heart. You repent from it and say to God, I want to to be an active servant. I want to be more thankful. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses me. I thank you for your sacrifice, Lord God. Please, please, Lord God, make me more holy. Oh, that's the bread and butter of Christian holiness, is thanksgiving, active service in the mission, repentance and confession, and repeat, that's it. You do those things. Oh, you will grow. You will thrive. You will strengthen. Your spiritual muscles will will bulge, and God will be greatly served. This became this 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 time became a, a, a sign, as we said, for their failure. It became a testimony for every generation of their doom because of the grumbling of that generation in the wilderness but it also became a season that was remembered for God's provision. The people's failure and their grumbling, but also a time to remember God's marvelous, gracious provision. So one of the feasts that God ends up commanding in Leviticus and other places is a regular annual feast every year for the whole people of God called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot if you're looking to be a bit more nerdy. It was, the, it was the time of the year when the people were commanded from all their cities and all their lands and tribes in the promised land, come together, and they did this in the wilderness, come together, have a holy assembly, a holy convocation it would be called on one Sabbath, and then for six days you go and take palm branches, you go and take sticks, this is the biblical basis for camping, you go and get branches, and you make for yourselves little, little dingy, little uh, shanty towns. And you live under them. Now, in the wilderness, they didn't quite do it that way because, well, that's how they lived. They lived in tents. They lived in makeshift abodes. And what God was commanding was, I know, God would, God would say, I know you're tempted and tend to forget that I sustained you in the wilderness, even though you tested and tried me, even though you deserve to be struck. I, I didn't. I sustained you. So every year, every future generation would camp. They would come together in the city, they would get branches, and they would live under them for a week and do feasting by the firesides to remember that they lived in tents those 40 years. Before they inherited the promised land of buildings and brick and gold swinging doors, they lived in tents. Remember that. And remember how God graciously fed you with miracle manna and graciously gave you water out of the rock. This would be the part of the remembrance of the feast of tabernacles. If you, if you trace the feast of tabernacles through scripture, you see a few very uh, significant events occur. It was as a part of the feast of tabernacles that Solomon first prayed over the newly constructed temple and dedicated it to the Lord when the when when the spirit of God fell and filled the temple with his glory. It was also at the Feast of Tabernacles generations later. After they were exiled, temple destroyed. Then they were brought back and temple rebuilt under Zerubbabel. And then at the Feast of Tabernacles that year, it was Ezra who led a preaching revival for the people of God. Gathered them in together, built a little wooden platform, opened up the old books and scrolls. He would read it, explain it, and give some application. Read it, explain it, and give it some application. The the historical basis for what we now now have as church expository preaching, that, this revival that struck the people of God, that brought them low in their sins and brought them in joy to God and His grace, that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles under Ezra. And then it was, it was hundreds of years later. There was, there was another Feast of Tabernacles. And, and at this point, many hundreds of years having passed, they, the Jews had developed a bit of a tradition that to remember God's gracious provision of water at the rock of Meribah and to pray for God's provision in the future... They would, they would do this little ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles where everybody would come out of their tent. They would line the streets and surround the temple. And the high priest would take a golden, golden bowl, a golden vessel, and he would go and collect this water and carry it into the temple as the people sung the, the Hallel which was Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, the the words that we sort of get the idea of hallelujah. They were praising God and worshiping him and the high priest would carry carry this bowl in and through the little tent they had made on the altar and he would pour it in and they would silently wait and then they would start singing again after. And there was this rabbi this sort of traveling rabbi who at who one point, hundreds of years later, at the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day, the big Sabbath day, feasting all week, they've all gathered, they're standing here in silence and he climbs up onto somewhat of a little platform and he yelled over the Jewish people then, Is anybody thirsty? Anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and you will have eternal life was the summary of this rabbi's strange uh, exclamation. This rabbi was named Joshua, or Jeshua, or in our modern English, Jesus. He was a young man who had grown up in Galilee and now 30 or so years old, made the trip to one of God's most holy days and dared, dared to interrupt the entire proceedings and say, eyes on me. Can you imagine a deacon standing up during a communion service and pushing the bread to the side and saying, that's okay, I will give you spiritual sustenance. This is all about the other deacons would take him out. We know, we know. But can you imagine the audacity? Who is this rabbi? Who is this, who is this young guy who dares to stand up with his 12 unemployed mates next to him and say, this old thing's about me, eyes over here. This Jesus is the same God who gave them water in the wilderness 1,500 years ago. This Jesus, this rabbi, was in fact the God who had led their forefathers through the wilderness by pillar of smoke and fire. This Jesus is the God who gave them bread from heaven in the form of manna. That's him. In other words, this Jesus standing up in the midst of a great crowd and doing open-air preaching that was unwelcomed by everybody else, but he took it upon himself, he was the God that they were claiming to worship. They had gathered to his temple. They had gathered in his name. They had gathered to worship him, and with blinders on, they couldn't see that that was the God they were worshiping. But listen to the words of John chapter 7. (coughs) You can go there if you wish. John chapter 7, verse 37. (coughs) On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this John says, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Verse 40 When when they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. The the prophet. There's many prophets. But the prophet was prophesied by Moses... To say there will one day come a prophet who will give you everything I've prophesied about. In greater measure, in fuller degree, he'll bring the lot. The Christ was the anointed one, the chosen one of God, set apart to bring to God's people and the world beyond them all of the great promises of salvation and forgiveness of sins and God now dwelling with man once again. That's what the Christ was meant to do. Now they hear him say these words and they say, is this guy that prophet? This really is. This must be the Christ. What connection are they making in their mind to be able to say that about Jesus based on what he said here? And the reality is that he stands up and connects an Isaiah prophecy and an Ezekiel prophecy, refers probably loosely to a Zechariah prophecy. He joins them all together, wraps them up and puts them around his neck and says they're pointing to what I and only I can give. Here's what he's he's referring to. There's no single verse that he seems to be quoting when he says, remember how the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It seems that he's thrown together a few passages. Uh, Part of what he's referring to is the great promise of Isaiah. The promise that Isaiah made in, in chapter 12, verse 3, when he said, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It seems also that he is so appropriately referring to a prophecy made by Ezekiel about this prophetic imagery that Ezekiel had seen when when he's standing in this great enormous temple and he can see water leaking out from the temple doors. And it's about toe deep and God takes him a bit further and and now outside the temple it's about ankle deep. It's it's starting to deepen and as it goes further and further, further out, it's knee deep, it's waist deep, it's chest deep, and now he can't cross it because as it goes out, it deepens and widens. And this, this Jesus is saying, is just precisely a picture of what happens to the Christian and the Christian church when I pour out my spirit after my gospel has been accomplished. Ezekiel says this in his chapter, he says, Everything will live where the river goes. Jesus is saying that I am the one who brings from heaven to earth forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, and the open door so that the Spirit, the Spirit can come into you and make you not just quenched from your thirst, not just filled to overflowing, but in fact in yourself a spring and source of life. So that as Christians and as together the local churches carry the gospel message throughout the world, we are that fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy when the river pours out from the holy place of God. And everywhere it goes, it gets deeper. And every nation it goes to, it turns bitter, waters sweet. And wherever that river of gospel glory goes, there goes life. From God with it. So if you're a Christian, you have drunk from that rivers of living water, and you yourself have become a spirit-filled agent to speak God's glorious gospel to the world and give life to those who hear. That's what you are in Jesus' words. And, And what we see in Jesus' gospel is not simply a sprinkling of water. Not simply a a rock giving water to quench thirst for a day, but eternal life given through Jesus by the Holy Spirit so that we become like those rocks everywhere we go to speak the gospel and bring life to the dying world. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What we see here is that Jesus, in his proclamation, we, we need to focus in on this. Jesus is here connecting the Feast of Tabernacles to him, but even even more beautifully, he is also connecting the, the story of the rock giving water at Meribah, he's connecting that to himself as well. Look at what he says. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can't you imagine that day when when God the Son walked with Moses and he stood upon the rock on a raised platform? Would he have said that over the people? Would Moses not have called out, if anybody thirsts, come here and drink, come and be quenched. And here is Jesus, 1500 years later, saying the same thing. But do you see, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul says that rock in the wilderness was Christ. It was a spiritual rock, And it was Christ. And what did Moses have to do to that rock to receive the blessing of life-giving water? He had to strike it. This is a gospel picture. That in order for there to be forgiveness to God's people, who themselves are undeserving, there must first be the striking of Christ for salvation to come. Jesus was struck with our condemnation. Jesus was punished with the penalty that our sins deserve. Jesus was struck in the judgment of God when we deserve judgment so that we could go without the striking and receive instead the rivers of living water. This is why, because this striking of Christ, striking of the rock, was so powerful a symbol, this is precisely why in years to come, when Moses is told again, speak to the rock, get water out of it again. Speak to the rock. It's already been struck. You don't strike Christ twice. You don't re-sacrifice Christ. You don't re-atone for sin. You simply ask for it. When Moses is told, go and speak to the rock, years later, he strikes it twice and then the water comes. And he is told because of that one seemingly insignificant act, he'll never enter the promised land. Why? Why? Because he tried to re sacrifice the Messiah. And it shall never be done. Jesus Christ came into the world once to be God in flesh, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. For you, so that in him would be the wells of eternal life, and he gave himself to be struck by God on our behalf, so that rivers of living water could come to us and we could partake of it. Now, the command for you today is not to go and find Christ and strike him, nor less to go and find areas of your life that you are unworthy of God's grace and punish yourself or try to clean up yourself. Goodness, you don't have to get clean to take a shower. You get clean by taking the shower. And so it is with Jesus. He says, if anybody thirsts, come to me. Come and be cleansed. And we say, well, but I'm very sinful. Then you should come. But I'm awful thirsty, and I didn't come to get water last Sunday. Then, by goodness gracious, come today. If anybody thirsts, that's the only requirement. What does it mean to thirst? Friends, it means to know your sinfulness. Do you know your sin? Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you understand that you are guilty? Do you know that if you died tonight, you would be condemned under God's law and sent to hell in the rivers of fire forever? Do you know that? Do you understand that you can't earn your way out of this? Do you understand that you can never be righteous, perfect enough, and you can never run away from God enough to ever escape that judgment? If you understand that, then you have thirst. When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, no other qualification. If you know you're a sinner, if you know you're under God's judgment, then come doesn't matter how many times you've not taken it before. doesn't matter how many times you've rebelled against God in the past. You must come and can come by the invitation of Jesus if you thirst. And then he says, if you thirst, then come and drink. I will give you something to drink. I will make sure you don't thirst again. And we might say, what does it mean to drink? What does it mean to drink what Christ offers? And he explains it in the very next verse. He says, whoever believes in me. Believes in me. Believing in Jesus is the spiritual act of coming to him and drinking. It's not a physical act. It's not a religious act. It is not even an act at all. To drink of Christ, to believe in Christ, is to hear about his perfect life. To understand that when he died, he died for sinners in our place as a substitutionary death, taking our guilt satisfying God's wrath. To drink of Christ is to understand that he resurrected on the third day, defeating death, and now he lives in heaven, having ascended, and he will come back and judge his enemies and bring his faithful to him. That's what it means to to drink. If you believe those things, if you believe that in him there is forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of the guilty conscience, if you believe that, If you know you're a sinner, you know Jesus can save and you lean into that, you trust Jesus for that, then you are drinking from the rivers of life that will never let you go. That is the gospel call of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Drink, come to him, believe his gospel and receive life eternal and you yourself will become a source of life to others. Do not stand back. Do not be thirsty and refuse to come, but sprint to Jesus. Come to him in your heart right now and drink of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, there's so many lessons to learn in what we see of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, but this this most chief sign that you want us to see is that just as they were commanded, you commanded them to come and take what they needed from you. You graciously provided, and you commanded them to come and drink and be quenched. So also now, Lord God, to every sinner, who is condemned, to every guilty conscience that does not have forgiveness, to every soul that knows they will be condemned, you command to them, come and receive my free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. Father God, would you enable them to come? Would you give them the will to receive Jesus? Would you give them a new heart so that they can believe in him? Father God, please. For those of us who know Jesus, who have delighted in receiving salvation, would you fill our souls and fill our hearts with the joy, with the thanksgiving, with the, with the exuberation of being forgiven people, that we, are, that we are people who are not just dry, not just quenched, but we are sources of eternal life even for others. Father God, would you send us out? Would you please pour out again the work of your Holy Spirit through the salvation of many? For the turning of the tide of the of the judgment in our culture for the for the sin that is so rampant out there would you would you exchange it for sweetness would you would you make many people saved and rejoices in salvation Father God, would you use us that we would be thankful people, not grumblers that we would be active people, not idle that we would be repentant people, not proud, so that it would not be said of us that we go astray in our heart even though the outside looks fairly religiously impressive. Save the lost, please, in our midst, Lord God. Inspire the faith and obedience of those who love you. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of eternal life and rivers of living water. We pray in his name. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.